Rethinking Democracy, the podcast in which we ask, where are we, how did we get here, and where might we be going? In the spring of 2020, as many countries went into lockdown, the Trinity Longroom Hub, Arts and Humanities Research Institute, Trinity College Dublin, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Centre at Columbia University organised a webinar series to explore the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on democracies worldwide. And now, as we get used to living with COVID, we're back to once again rethink democracy. I'm Elspeth Payne. I'm the Beata Schuler Research Fellow in the Trinity Longroom Hub, where I work on the Institute's Crisis of Democracy project. I'm also the host of this podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Etain Tanim. Etain is an Associate Professor in International Peace Studies and a Fellow of Trinity College Dublin. She is currently writing a book on British-Irish relations in the 21st century and, alongside Trinity Law Professors Oren Doyle and David Kenny, is part of the Working Group on Unification Referendums on the Island of Ireland, led by the UCL Constitution Unit. At the original series, Attain discussed the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on political cooperation in Northern Ireland and Ireland. Really, in Northern Ireland and Ireland, we've lurched from crisis to crisis so recently. So looking at the implications of um, the virus for democracy, in one way, well, it's not perhaps compared to some areas, not so destabilizing, we, we can't be scaremongers, but in, a, in another way it has brought out some of the negative tendencies in our democracies in Northern Ireland and in Ireland. She explained how the 2016 Brexit vote had reignited questions about identity, borders and unity. She went on to examine how divergent responses to COVID-19 had emphasised Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom while serving as a reminder of Ireland's status as a different jurisdiction. The issue is that in itself the crisis not only was a public health one in the context of Ireland and Northern Ireland, it led to polarisation in Northern Ireland again. It led to the border issue again becoming an issue. So it became politicised away from the functional need of, of preserving lives. In this podcast, we talk about the Shared Ireland Initiative. This was launched by Irish Taoiseach Michal Martin in October 2020. The initiative aims to build consensus around a shared future founded on the Good Friday Agreement. It involves North-South collaboration on major strategic challenges, further developing a shared island economy and cooperation in areas such as health and education, and fostering constructive and inclusive dialogue. We also talk about the Protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland, the provision within the Brexit Withdrawal Agreement designed to prevent a hard border on the island, and the UK Internal Market Bill a controversial piece of legislation introduced in the House of Commons in September 2020, containing provisions that, in a breach of international law, would allow Britain to rewrite parts of the Brexit withdrawal agreement. Attain, welcome back. So in one sense, it feels like not much has happened since we've last spoken, or maybe that not much has happened since the Brexit vote. In some sense, the, the questions we have been hearing about and the conversations feel like they're the same as they were in, in 2016. And yet, on the other hand, it feels like we're in a, a very different place. And maybe lots has suddenly happened. We're currently in the midst of a last push for a trade deal. I think I agree with you that there's a sense of deja vu so often in these negotiations that nothing has changed. Um, 
but actually also there's a sense of how much has changed, I mean, particularly since 2016. Um, but I think even within each tranche, we seem to be moved further and further along a road that's very different from the road I expected. I mean, my first um, work for the Long Room Hub uh, was the, uh, the event with um, Sir Dominic Chilcott and Yuna No Halpin. Um, Sir Dominic was ambassador British ambassador at the time, he was about to leave and he, he did. Um, and it's so vastly different. And, and, and the things I said then and the blog posts I wrote then for the LSE really seem like a different world. So um, the, the nitty gritty of negotiations, the issue of the Irish border and the protocol seems the constant, you know, that we still come back to that. But Otherwise, I think it's completely different. I think um, my expectations of what would happen were probably proved false, <laughs> which maybe it's difficult to say as an academic. Um, and I think I've been shocked by what's happened. Um, and I think the Irish government has been shocked actually at times by what's happened. So it's difficult to go through every single event, but working chronologically backwards, I think the British government's announcement that it was going to drop the protocol and introduce the internal market bill um, was, was really a huge shock. I think it was a shock to, as I said, the Irish government and officials, it was a shock to the public and it was a shock to academics. So trust was already low, um, you know, through all these negotiations, particularly since Boris Johnson took over as Prime Minister. I mean, it was tough with Theresa May, but I think actually a relationship developed between Theresa May and the Irish government. And there was a consciousness that she was constrained by Brexiteers, that she was trying to channel a path towards a resolution. I think then with Boris Johnson, um, really the unpredictability of his behavior, the sense of not knowing um, whether his word was his bond and then actually finding out it wasn't, um, to the extent of reneging on an international treaty, really has undermined trust hugely. My first lecture about this, I anticipated that Anglo-Irish or British-Irish relations would be strong, that there was a bedrock there from the peace process, that they would work through this, that Brexit was bad, but they would limit the damage. That pretty early on wasn't happening. So that, you know, that, that is still the case. So therefore trust was not there very early on. There was a fear that Northern Ireland would be used by the British government as a pawn in trying to secure a good trade deal. And at that time, there was the, the big discussion was that the British government wanted Northern Ireland to be included with the trade talks, that they deal with them together. Um, whereas the EU insisted that the Northern Ireland issue must be sorted out first in the first stage and then the trade talks, which is what happened in the end. So that's kind of where we were at then. Um, but I think now that trust is really at an all time low. Um, so it's it's beyond, I suppose, you could go back to the 80s, I'd say it's it could in some ways nearly worse in, in some ways, but definitely the early 80s. The big task after this is to rebuild trust, because it's frightening how quickly it was eroded after such a successful relationship and after the Queen's visit and, you know, all the improvements. Um, so in that way, I would say things are very different. I think the level of mistrust or distrust is far higher than it was um, on really far higher definitely than 2016, but far higher than it was the last time I, you know, I spoke. 
I think the fact that they have gone to this point of brinkmanship in the negotiations is quite shocking as well. But I feel, you know, in decades to come or, you know, when people can look at archives, we'll see a more complex picture of, of how the EU bargained mm. um, and the Irish government's role and, and the British government's. I'm sure we'll look back and analyse things or future generations will analyse things in a more nuanced way, um, you know, about miscalculations on all sides. But having said that, I think it's unequivocal that uh, Boris Johnson's behaviour has been um, beyond what would have been expected and has had a huge impact on trust. It's interesting what you say about the, the historians adding the complexity, because that's something we're doing right now in, in, I guess, Irish history with the commemoration that we're looking back 100 years later and adding in that, that complexity and, and that, those difficulties. So I think it will be a challenge um, for, for future historians definitely to, to get to grips with this and to get beyond that, um, as you say, very black and white, simple picture. Um, last time we spoke, you spoke a lot about the issue of stereotyping um, and mm. how the what was happening in terms of COVID and the border and Britain's response and Ireland's different response and the issue of Northern Ireland within all of that had played into existing stereotypes. Since 2016, there has been um, the stereotyping and labelling uh, in the media uh, very casually. You know, sometimes I think it's it's people aren't really aware. I think a number of us have been quite concerned actually about it um, because of the whole shared island vision um, of Micheál Martin. To my knowledge, he's the first Taoiseach who has highlighted the issue of our identity, where he called for self-reflection north and south of the border, not just north of the border, that we need to reflect on our identity as well, and also to listen to other narratives of history. And he referred as well to education. I think that's very good. It's acknowledging that this is an issue and it's definitely something which has got worse since Brexit. And the whole implication is for the shared island that if we are trying to build reconciliation, because we've also talked in the past, or I have and many have about the polarization in Northern Ireland since Brexit, if we're trying to build reconciliation, then those kinds of stereotypes aren't acceptable. And obviously, Michael Martin has acknowledged that, as has President Higgins um, in, in that great event, the Macnuff event. And I've noticed within that, which I think Anne Dolan from Trinity spoke last week as well, um, and also the Bloody Sunday commemoration, which was so moving, I think the emphasis is very much on the lives of the people that were lost and the tragedy, rather than making a political statement. Um, so I, I think actually it's, it's very positive that one change I think that has happened is at leadership level, there is real emphasis now on making sure that sort of negativity doesn't get any worse and hopefully will improve. I think you're right. The Bloody Sunday commemorations, um, the responses to the president's uh, recent commemoration event, um, you mentioned Anne Dolan's fantastic contribution, mm -hmm. that these have been such positive, um, positive acts of commemoration that really, as you say, put the human experience back in there. Um, and that idea of shared dialogue, Anne Dolan mentioned, um, and I guess the other thing that struck me is how much, um, as an individual, I have to say, I, I haven't um, noticed a, uh, any anger at um, English people, or British people as individuals, but, but how much this has been a casual Brits at it again? How much has the developments in, in COVID and virus infection rates and responses changed this, this difficult relationship between Britain, Ireland and Northern Ireland? When I spoke about this last, um, it, it had become nearly sectarianized in Northern Ireland, um, where if uh, 
say Gabriel Scali called for an all-island approach and then people reacted say, saying oh well Sinn Féin will want that because it's a tool to get a united Ireland, it's part of an agenda etc. I feel that improved, I mean that's a, a generalisation but I think in general it improved. The executive did manage to steer a course through the crisis, you know the, there were tensions obviously but they really I suppose put a brave face on it until recently when the DUP um, you know made a, a sort of solo run on the lockdown decision and delayed it and now there is a lockdown having delayed it that you know showed the stresses of COVID on the executive itself but overall they have managed it fairly coherently I would argue and kept disagreements below the radar. As regards British-Irish relations I would say it's been another cause of tension but not a huge cause, I mean, the huge cause of tension is Brexit and the negotiations. You know, in other ways, they have discussed together, Boris Johnson and Michael Martin have discussed the COVID response together. There are issues around the common travel area, which again was causing a criticism of the Irish government because quarantining had to occur for uh, British people coming here, but not the other way around, Irish people going to England. So all these kind of issues, I suppose, caused aggravation, but I wouldn't have said it was fundamental. I mean, I think the the Brexit impact has been so fundamental. I don't think the COVID aspect is as large. And I think they have met to discuss cooperation as has the, um, the British-Irish Council, um, the institution meeting under the Good Friday Agreement um, representing the Dominions, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Ireland and England. They have discussed the common travel area and that's worked very well because under the shared island, there's a pledge to enhance the role of the British-Irish Council and the British Irish Intergovernmental Conference. And I think COVID actually, in a way, uh, trying to find a silver lining, it's given an issue for the, for the BIC to, to galvanize and to discuss. So I think that's actually been quite positive. So it hasn't been as a entirely bleak picture about COVID. It has created strains in Northern Ireland and it has created strains, I suppose, increased tensions between unionists and the Irish government because there's this quick knee-jerk reaction on, you know, to, to what the Irish government does at times. Um, but I think it's been managed relatively well. And I think it could be, as in the EU, it, it could form the logic of greater harmonization and cooperation. You know, once this specific pandemic is over, I think it shows the need for, for increased cooperation in public health. It almost seems like um, two parents that can't agree on most things, but can come together in, in a crisis that has lost some of the controversy because you've not got the British-Irish relationship. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's um, that's a good analogy, actually. And, and the functional area um, at times has increasingly shown, um, I suppose, shown that cooperation can happen. My PhD was on cross-border cooperation in the early 90s, and I, I would see a huge change in unionist attitudes to that now. So even where there are difficulties, there is far more acceptance of it than there was in the early 90s. So I think that's a positive and COVID, I think, will highlight that that can happen. But having said that, I mean, I'm, I'm probably to some people, they'll think, why is she positive? Because with the Donegal rates being so high of COVID, because they're, you know, arguably because of um, it being so high in Northern Ireland and coming across, clearly there isn't a coherent all-island approach. Um, you know, there are different rules and regulations. Um, so on that basis, while I think it could be a basis for later, for the future, for more cooperation, it's clearly quite difficult now in, in, in trying to arrange that. And I think a big factor in that 
is the different ideologies in Northern Ireland. Mm. No, I did wonder whether um, away from the governmental level on the individual level, whether the higher numbers in Northern Ireland had affected people's opinion on, on this idea of a shared island, on the idea of unification. I would think it's sort of the, the people who already want a united Ireland, of course, will, will, will argue that this is an example of why unification is necessary and sensible. I wouldn't think it would affect those who are in the neither camp necessarily, or obviously unionists, because you can have coordination and cooperation without a united Ireland. And, you know, the, the aim of the shared island is really to, to reach that level. Michael Martin has said that he doesn't want unification in the next five years. And then he was pushed about that by Harry McGee in the Irish Times about, well, do you want it in 10 years? And he was ambivalent. His point seemed to be it is not an overriding priority for him, um, that what he wants is reconciliation. So I think my point about COVID is that you can have the benefits of cooperation and harmonisation in economic policy areas without having unification. And I think at the moment, the shared island approach is emphasising that. And on a positive note, while, of course, um, some unionists object and would see it as a slippery slope and a ploy to achieve unification, but having said that, I think there are far more unionists now who support that approach without feeling threatened than there were up until the 90s. Yeah, and I, I guess there's a good a good time to take stock um, around Brexit and around everything that's happened in, in the British and Irish relations, Britain and Northern Ireland and, and, and Ireland's kind of complicated relationship is something that predates the European Union. And obviously the European Union made everything easier when you came to the Good Friday Agreement mm -hmm. and in, in terms of that working. But but there is a pre-existing relationships, pre-existing connections that aren't just political, that are about other kinds of cooperation, whether it's economic, but also that social and personal and cultural that are still going on and that we're still entangled by and untangling and retangling in, in all those ways. Looking forward then, what are the main challenges and threats to democracy as we go forward? And hopefully, I mean, the first vaccines are already being rolled out. What do you think this future is going to look like? Yes, I think I said in the last session that I didn't feel democracy was threatened as such, um, but there were little cracks or little things which were worrying that had to be monitored. So the first thing is the polarisation of opinion, because I think that can contribute to populism quite easily. So while that's not necessarily a threat to democracy, it's not something we associate with healthy democracies. So I, I would argue that um, that to me is one of the imminent issues. And I would argue that the shared island vision again is really about trying to temper any kind of further polarization, such as the stereotyping we've just mentioned and deal pragmatically with policy issues and bring people together and hear different narratives and try and understand different narratives, even if we can't agree. But I, I think that, you know, all what we have seen with Brexit and with COVID has contributed at times to populist type language. And we saw with COVID as well, um, very much a, a sort of nationalism attached to it. I think in a number of countries, it became nearly like a competition about who's doing best. And at that time, um, Ireland was doing extremely well and we are now doing well, but we, we obviously had our uh, blip as well. So there was a kind of um, one-upmanship and particularly of course, when it was the UK not doing well. So I, I think those sorts of issues, again, will have to be managed carefully. And they weren't, it wasn't at political elite level that that kind of language was occurring. It was more in the media and anecdotally, nearly, I thought, um, in society. So 
I would say populism is something that has to be um, monitored and all the things that go with it, the, you know, nationalism, jingoism, negative nationalism, because nationalism can be positive, um, which is something Michael D. Higgins um, said in a speech about three years ago as well. Nationalism has a lot of positives, but it's the negative variety of nationalism and the stereotyping and labeling um, and jingoism that's to be watched. And that to me would be one of the issues around democracy that's been highlighted with COVID and with Brexit. The breakup of the union is an issue in everyone's head. So what does that mean for democracy? With Scotland, you know, it's obviously much more now a question and, and many would say it's going to happen. And that could then have knock-on effects on Northern Ireland and, and possibly even Wales in decades to come, but we don't know yet. Um, and those issues in themselves don't undermine democracy, but mismanagement of how opinions are reflected or dealt with and how referendums are held, they, that does have implications for democracy. Um, other than that, and I think, uh, I may be always optimistic, but I think every crisis is an opportunity. And I think we have learned from the COVID crisis and hopefully we've learned from the Brexit crisis and hopefully the EU has learned as well. Um, on, on trying to be, again, back to Michael D. Higgins, he referred to the EU being too remote from what he called the street, from people on the street, from grassroots people, and that that can lead to a withdrawal of support for the EU project. So I would hope, and I think it is happening really, that the COVID crisis and the Brexit crisis has shown the EU and shown politicians in EU states the need to be made relevant and to show relevance and compassion to people um, on the street, as Michael D. Higgins called it. So the large funding that's been given to help restore economies after COVID is really a big shift. We see it quite as being quite different from the bailout period, for example, of austerity. There, there's a very Keynesian shift in the EU to, to helping um, for pragmatic and for you know, very strong political reasons to maintain co cohesion really um, in, in its response to COVID. So, while it was slow at the beginning, and I think it was criticised for that, I think this crisis has made it clear that the EU and member states have to be sensitive to politics, really, to people on the street, to the disempowered, to those without money, um, to those who are unemployed, because the project does need support to continue. So I think that's a positive, and, and that's a positive for democracy. Thank you, Attain, and thank you for listening. The original series, Rethinking Democracy in an Age of Pandemic, ran for five weeks across April and May 2020. It engaged academics and journalists on questions about borders, marginalisation, inequality, the everyday and the public sphere. A free curriculum with the webinar recordings as well as suggested readings and resources for this original series has just been launched. More information on the project, as well as links to the curriculum and all resources mentioned in this episode, are available on the Trinity Longroom Hub website, www.tcd.ie forward slash Trinity Longroom Hub, or the Society of Fellow and Heyman Centre website, www.heymancentre.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at TLR Hub, and at SOF Heyman. <laughs>